This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 425,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going, with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend The Disaster Artist, My Life Inside the Room, The Greatest Bad Movie Ever Made, by Greg Sestero. The Room is something of a legend among people who like bad movies. It is probably the worst film I've ever seen, but also enormously entertaining to watch with the right crowd. If you're wondering how such a travesty could get made, well, the story is pretty crazy, and Greg Sestero, who plays one of the leads, tells everything he remembers in this fascinating look at one guy's crazy passion project. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. Welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 318, Lone Wolf and Cub. So, it's our final episode of 2019, and yes, it's the final episode I'll be taking next week off, because after that, we're going to be starting a two-parter, and I didn't really want to start one part, take a week off, and then come back, so next week is going to be my holiday break. And I figured this was a chance to do something fun, interesting, a little unusual. A history not of a big event or moment, but of a movie series that I really like. Plus, it feels very timely because, like everyone else in the known universe, I have been swept into the pop culture phenomenon that is The Mandalorian. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. I think it's really great. It has good Star Wars material, but still maintains its own very distinctive tone. And it also does a really good job paying homage to the inspiration for Star Wars. George Lucas got a lot of his ideas and approaches from samurai films and westerns, and you can really see that in both the original Star Wars and in The Mandalorian. Indeed, many episodes of The Mandalorian are riffing directly off famous samurai films. The fourth episode is pretty much the plot of The Seven Samurai. But beyond that, the entire structure of the show is borrowing from one of the most famous samurai film series of the 20th century, and so I've been thinking a lot about that series lately, and so that is what we are going to talk about this week. But let me start things off with a little story to set the tone. The year was 1970, and manga writer Koike Kazuo was in a bit of a bind. Well, really, it was a good problem to have. You see, Koike, with the help of an artist named Kojima Goseki, had managed to produce his very first hit. Both men were relatively early in their careers. Koike Kazuo was 34, Kojima Goseki was 42, coincidentally literally the exact same age as Astro Boy creator Tezuka Osamu. They were born on the same day. Neither had a particularly stellar resume up until this point. Koike had written a series about the Shinsengumi that had done reasonably well for itself, though it hadn't exactly been record-shattering, and Kojima Goseki had only managed to get his first job illustrating manga three years earlier. 
Before then, he'd made his living illustrating posters for movies and shows, as well as covers for cheap paperbacks. However, together the two managed to produce something that was really starting to take off, a series of manga that had premiered the previous year, which they were calling Kozure Okami, roughly Wolf with Child in Tow. When, spoilers, the series was eventually translated into English, the translators made the extremely wise decision to ditch the literal meaning of the name and go with something far cooler sounding, Lone Wolf and Cub. The setup of the series was straightforward enough. The plot revolves around a father-son duo, Ogami Ito and his son Daigoro, and their adventures through the late Edo period. Ogami Ito was a fictional samurai, holding the fictional title of Kogi Kaishakunin, essentially the shogun's personal executioner, responsible for performing what's called the Kaishaku role. You see, when a person commits seppuku, ritual suicide involving cutting your insides open, the Kaishaku is the one responsible for decapitating them. The title of Kogi Kaishakunin is of course totally made up, the Shogun did not have a personal executioner he sent around to cut off the heads of anyone who had been ordered to commit seppuku, but the job does make the guy sound like a total badass. And badass is exactly what he is. Ogami Ito is not only an executioner, he is the master of a famous, and in this case actually real, school of swordsmanship called Suiōryu, with a badass Dotanuki sword to do it with. Dotanuki being the name of a place in Kyushu that was home to a prolific group of also actually real swordsmiths in the 1500s. Plus, Ogami Ito has a totally smoking wife named Azami, who I assume is very impressed by his talents for stabbing and or slicing people. But of course it wouldn't be much of a series if you got to just watch him be happy forever, so that's not what happens. Instead, in the course of his masterful head chopping, Ogami Ito manages to get himself into trouble with a secret group of spies and assassins and ninja working for the Shogun, the Urayagyu, or Hidden Yagyu clan. This secret clan, which is based very, and I do mean very loosely, on the real Yagyu clan, which served the Shogun as swordsmanship teachers, is all about secretly bumping off the Shogun's enemies. Well, the leader of the Urayagyu decides he doesn't much like this rando executioner knowing all about their secret schemes or whatever, so he hatches a plan to destroy Ogami Ito's reputation, get him kicked out of his job, and kill his wife because it's 1970 and I guess that trope is not tired yet. And so Ogami Ito is left friendless and alone with only his badass sword and his baby boy Daigoro to his name. So Ogami Ito and Daigoro go on a quest against the Urayagyu for revenge that will take them all around Japan, and in the meantime, they pay the bills by taking jobs as contract hitmen all over the country. The inspiration for the whole idea, according to Koike, was his sense in the 1960s that family bonds were being strained by the difficulties of modern living, that the New Japan being touted in the mainstream press and by the government was undermining the central nature of family relationships with its emphasis on economic and corporate power as central to Japan's success. So, Koike would later say, he wanted to make a story that was all about a powerful family bond, and one that was driven by interesting characters, because, as he would later repeat, quote, 
Comics are created by the characters. If a character is well created, the comic becomes a hit. As you're probably getting from this summary, the whole story is a bit pulpy and over the top. Indeed, it was that exact quality that made Lone Wolf and Cub such an immediate hit. You have to remember that this is 1970, and that as a result, Japan is only 25 years removed from the old imperial government. During the imperial period, samurai dramas were a very different thing, as was the public image of the samurai itself. Samurai figured heavily into the propaganda of Imperial Japan, as did a rather distorted vision of the idea of Bushido. The Imperial government used these ideas to promote a certain vision of Japanese-ness, grounded in loyalty, duty, honor, just as the samurai of old had been defined by their unquestioning loyalty to their master, so too would the samurai of now, which is to say all Japanese, but especially the military, be loyal to their lord, the emperor. Of course, as we've talked about before, this whole idea is frankly ridiculous. Throughout their history, the samurai were defined more by an absence of supreme loyalty than by its presence. But truth is not what matters in propaganda. An idea that resonates emotionally is what's important. The samurai were a powerful cultural touchstone that could be effectively deployed to shape a collective Japanese vision of what Japanese-ness really meant. If this is all feeling a bit big picture, I think one way to bring it back down to earth is to consider an example, the best one being, in my opinion, Mizoguchi Kenji's 1941 film version of The 47 Ronin. The film was released on December 1st, 1941. The version you usually see today has a title card exhorting the Japanese people to fight hard in the Greater East Asian War against the Western imperialists. The film hits all the notes of the imperial-era samurai mythos. The samurai are loyal to a fault, practically joyous at the prospect of sacrificing themselves for their honor. Indeed, at the very end of the film, the 47 ronin are sentenced to death for their violation of the law in avenging their former master, and they literally all sing and dance. The film itself is very light on action. Instead, the focus is on the emotional drama of the samurai, as they choose lives of austerity and loyalty over their selfish personal interests. After the Second World War, you see this image of the samurai begin to change. Kurosawa Akira's early samurai films, like Rashomon or Seven Samurai, are, for example, still pretty thinky and they do revolve around emotional drama, but that drama moves away from this theme of unflinching loyalty and is instead more humanistic in its portrayal of flawed people doing flawed things. Plus, frankly, there is still some pretty good action, especially in Seven Samurai, which makes it fun to watch. The 1960s, meanwhile, saw the rise of a new phenomenon in samurai drama, the so-called Chanbara film. Chanbara films are action-heavy samurai dramas. There's no plotting nonsense about honor and duty or all of that, or if it's there, it's kept to a minimum. The precise emphasis is on cool action stuff and the performing thereof. In the increasingly consumerist society of 1970s Japan, these films, which were fun and over-the-top and involved lots of things that were cool to look at, appealed to a mass market of people who, for the first time in a good long while, had a consistent bit of extra money to go see a movie. 
The biggest Chanbara franchise of the 1960s was, without a doubt, Zatoichi. The franchise would eventually get 26 films and a TV show from 1962 to the 1980s, and would get revived in the early 2000s with a new series of films, as well as, interestingly enough, a stage adaptation directed by Takashi Miike, of all damn people, which is really quite something to think about. Anyway, Zatoichi is the tale of a blind man who makes his living as a gambler among the Yakuza, but who is also an unstoppable badass swordsman who does unstoppably badass things. The films succeeded because their action-packed nature appealed to audiences, but also because they'd found one hell of a dramatic lead in the form of Katsu Shintaro as Zatoichi. Katsu was, to put it mildly, a personality. He started his entertainment career as a performer on the shamisen, a three-stringed instrument similar to a banjo. Specifically, he was from a family of Nagauta performers, a sort of long-form singing accompanied by the shamisen that features heavily in kabuki. However, Katsu switched to film acting when he realized that it paid much better. Zatoichi was his breakout. Katsu's success was such that he was in a position to found his own production company, Katsu Productions, and start acting as a producer on the Zatoichi films, not just the dramatic lead. It was also such that he had ready access to both a great deal of booze, he was an alcoholic and drank extremely regularly, and many other fine drugs. Katsu was arrested at least three times that I could find, usually for possession of cocaine, marijuana, or some other intoxicant. Now, I could and really probably should do a whole episode on Katsu Shintaro. Did you know that he was supposed to have the starring role in Kurosawa Akira's Kagemusha, but managed to get kicked out of the production after just one day on set? But that's not what we're here to talk about. Because you see, when the manga of Lone Wolf and Cub came out in 1970, Katsu Shintaro really liked it. And to be fair, he was far from the only one. The series became something of an overnight sensation. Patrick Masius, writing for the Criterion Collection, has a great essay on this. He notes, I think correctly, that when Lone Wolf and Cub came out, Japan was at an interesting point. The country's wealth was growing. Average Japanese enjoyed a level of economic security they really hadn't since the 1920s at best. On the flip side, though... This was also the time of violent clashes between the state and the Japanese radical left. We've covered a few of these before, like the Sanrizuka battle over Narita Airport, and the conflict between the state and the various factions of the Japanese Red Army. And on the opposing side, you had the growing presence of Japanese ultra-rightists, led by people like the novelist Mishima Yukio, whose romanticized call for a return to the values of the imperial era would culminate in his dramatic storming of the Self-Defense Force's headquarters and eventual suicide. All of this was swinging about in Hashtag the Culture as Lone Wolf and Cub was coming into its own, and Masias argues, I think correctly, that the reception the comic got was at least in part due to a sense that it fit the times, in addition to its purely artistic merit. A story about what it meant to be a good parent or child during a difficult and turbulent time, and one that explored ideas about honor and loyalty and service, stripped from the assumption that these things were necessarily ideal when they were pushed to an extreme, really struck a cultural chord. 
Plus, of course, the series had fantastic action, and to boot, Koike was a great researcher who, while he did make many things up to fit his narrative, also paid a lot of attention to period details to make the story feel more authentic and more grounded. So people loved it, including Katsu, and he decided to make the series into a movie. Katsu Productions would help fund it, with help from the production company that had made the Zatoichi films, Daie. Daie was a film conglomerate formed by the Japanese government during the Second World War as part of a forced merger of several smaller studios, with the intent to give the government more control over cinema and to ration the resources for film in order to support the war effort. The conglomerate was not broken up after the war, it even continued under its original president, a film executive named Nagata Masaichi. Nagata's leadership served the company well. In addition to Zatoichi, he'd funded a young director named Kurosawa Akira to make a little picture called Rashomon, which I'm told is quite good. He'd also funded a few other classics, from the sublime, like Mizoguchi Kenji's Ugetsu, to the pulptastic, like the various Gamera films. Koike Kazuo would, meanwhile, come in as a writer, with Katsu himself serving as a producer. The project was really set to be a smash hit, though there was still one outstanding spot that needed to be filled, a lead actor. The character of Ogami Ito is supposed to be this physical badass swordsman who was also a charismatic and loving father, and that's a lot of ground to cover. Who could fit the bill? The first choice was Tetsuya Watari, known for playing the lead in Yakuza films. His most famous role was the lead of Tokyo Nagaremono, or Tokyo Drifter, where he had to play a reformed Yakuza hitman trying to escape his past. He certainly fit the bill in terms of a combination of badassery and sensitivity in his acting, but unfortunately he took ill and had to drop off the project. Who could fill his shoes? Well, it turned out there was one actor in the world who'd heard about the project and made up his mind already. He would be Ogami Ito, and he would do what he had to in order to convince those in charge of the project to give him the spot. And that's how, one day in 1971, writer Koike Kazuo left his home in Tokyo, only to find an overweight man wildly swinging a boken, a wooden sword, on his porch. That man was Wakayama Tomisaburo, and like Katsushintaro, his roots were actually in Kabuki, which is not that surprising because he was actually Katsushintaro's older brother. The two were biological siblings, though Katsu had been adopted by another family that was in need of a male heir. Wakayama had started his career as a lead actor on the Kabuki stage, but tired of it quickly. He wanted to do something that felt fresher and more modern. He'd also developed an interest in the martial arts. By the time he was 13, he started studying judo and would pick up a variety of sword and staff-related martial arts on top of that. Using these skills, Wakayama would take on a variety of roles in both samurai films, especially Chanbara sword-fighting epics, and Yakuza movies. But he'd had yet to have a breakout role, and hoped that Lone Wolf and Cub would be it. But how to stand out? Well, the best way to do it was to get the creator of the franchise's blessing to play the lead, which meant he needed to convince Koike to recommend him for the part, hence the sword-waving antics on Koike's doorstep. Here I'm just going to quote directly from Patrick Macias' essay because he says it so well. Quote, 
Koike would later report that he had been puzzled by the intense sword-wielding figure on his doorstep. Wakayama told him, I really want this role, and hazarded a guess as to what Koike might be thinking. After all, the hefty actor was hardly the spitting image of the physically fit main character of the Lone Wolf manga. Wakayama said, If you're hesitant to let me play this part because I'm too fat, look at this. And with that, the 42-year-old veteran of the Kabuki stage and numerous Yakuza and Chanbara pictures proceeded to dazzle Koike in his yard with a ferocious display of swordplay and somersaults. Apparently, he did one hell of a somersault because Koike was convinced and recommended the relatively unknown Wakayama for the part. Katsushintaro was, for his part, happy to cast his brother, and so things went forward. Well, I should say it wasn't quite as simple as all that. You see, Japan's studio system at this point was closer to the golden age of Hollywood than anything else, and this included studios having exclusive rights to actors appearing in their films. If you wanted to be an actor, you had to sign with one of the major studios, and part of that signing included a contract stating you would only appear in that studio's films. The goal was to cultivate acting talent within the studio, so that if someone proved to be a big hit as an actor, the studio could be sure to retain them and not have to worry about getting into bidding wars with other studios to buy their talent off them, at least as long as the actor's contract lasted. Lone Wolf and Cub was being distributed by Daie as part of its long-standing partnership with Katsushintaro's Katsu Films. Wakayama Tomisaburo was not a Daie actor, though. He was with the rival Toei Studio, long known for budget action films. It really says something that the best-known movie from Toei that I could find from this period was Sony Chiba's The Street Fighter, which I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that most of you have not seen or heard of. It's pretty good, but for the record, not as good as Sonichiba's masterpiece Karate Bear Fighter, which is exactly what it sounds like. Anyway, Toei was, as it turned out, willing to cut a deal with Daie to lend Wakayama's contract over to the studio for the Lone Wolf and Cub movies, so that was one hurdle overcome. Around the same time, the series landed veteran director Misumi Kenji, who was a huge find. Misumi was a veteran director of Chanbara Films, who by this point was just wrapping up directing his sixth Zatoichi film, Working with Katsu. The 20th Zatoichi, Zatoichi Goes to the Fire Festival, which tragically has nothing to do with Ja Rule. So, the series now had backing, a lead actor, a director, we're all set. Except, not so fast, because here's where things start to go to hell in a handbasket. First, Daie declared bankruptcy right in the middle of filming the first movie. What happened? Well, it turned out that Daie president Nagata Masaiche was a bit of a profligate spender for his company. He'd gone ahead and done things like purchased a Daie baseball team, the Daimai Orions, now the Chiba Latte Marines, which probably would have been fine, except that the 1970s saw a massive downturn in film revenue thanks in large part to affordable TVs, which drew people out of theaters. The sharp downturn in movie viewership in the early 70s saw some studios pivot to things like softcore porn, which they knew would draw a continued audience. Daie, on the other hand, just ran out of money. Lone Wolf and Cub 1, now tentatively titled Sword of Vengeance, 
was now an independent film being made by Katsu Studios. Fortunately, as Daie went through bankruptcy proceedings, which it would eventually survive in diminished form, its studios and facilities were still available for Katsu to rent to provide sets and equipment for the film. One thing I have learned from personal experience working on some projects is that it's actually a lot of work to rent the kind of sets and extras and equipment you need to shoot samurai movies. They're all very specialized. Turns out you can't just walk into your nearest 7-Eleven and purchase a set of samurai armor and swords that look convincing but aren't actually real. Anyway, the team had to now go and actually, you know, make the movie, which by all accounts was pretty grueling given the intensity of the shooting schedule. The film was supposed to be ready for release in early 1972. At the same time, the film now needed a new distributor, essentially a middleman who would negotiate with the movie theaters to handle where the film would be showing and how much of a cut the theater versus the production companies got. Eventually, Toho Films, one of Japan's most venerable film franchises, ended up deciding to pay for distribution rights. Toho had also taken advantage of the collapse of Daie, to acquire the rights to distribute the new Zatoichi and hope to make use of the two Chanbara films as a sort of market-dominating one-two punch of action goodness to really clean up through 1972. So, Lone Wolf and Cub Sword of Vengeance was finished and released in January 1972, and the reception was quite promising. The harrowing and yet still stylish film was a natural outgrowth of both the manga and audience expectations around samurai media. The first scene, where Ogami Ito participates in the execution of a small child, really set a bleak tone for the film as a whole, but the fight scenes themselves issued realism in favor of stylish, over-the-top action. It was a real hit, and good thing, too. You see, Katsu Shintaro had not signed on to make one film. He'd signed on to make Lone Wolf and Cub into a film. Not just one part, but the whole shebang. What that looked like in practice was a plan to produce six different Lone Wolf and Cub films, all of which were going to be released between 1972 and 1974, meaning they would all have to be filmed in the span of about two years. Indeed, the first four Lone Wolf and Cub movies all hit theaters in 1972, which is pretty insane and speaks to both the skill with which Katsu Films was able to move these productions along, and the extent to which cranking out these samurai genre films had become something of an assembly line science. The frantic pace created its own problems, though. First, when Toei Studios started to get cold feet about lending one of its leading men off to another studio. You see, the first Lone Wolf and Cub did really well in theaters, and helped make Wakayama Tomisaburo more of a known quantity as a star. And so, around the same time that the second film, Baby Card at the River Sticks, started to film, Toei executives started asking themselves why they were lending this guy out so another studio could make bank instead of doing it themselves. And that led to some serious consideration of pulling Wakayama out of the franchise after the second film wrapped. And that would be, to put it mildly, a bit of an issue. After all, he was playing the lead, and that's kind of important. What were the alternatives? Recast the lead role? Cut the film series short? None of those was particularly appealing, to say the least. 
In the end, Toei was convinced to let Wakayama stick around through the remaining films. I suspect that what made that possible, at least in part, was Wakayama's own willingness to work hard. In addition to his work on Lone Wolf and Cub, he was a part of the shoots for no less than 10 other movies shot by Toei that came out between 1972 and 1974. The lead actor was safe, but that didn't mean the problems were done. First, when it came time to direct the fourth Lone Wolf and Cub movie, Baby Cart in Peril, director Misumi Kenji found himself too burned out to continue, and had to hand off the directing spot to a new director named Saito Buichi, who mostly worked on pulpy Yakuza films. Misumi was able to return for the fifth movie, but by the time the sixth and final one, White Heaven in Hell, started, he'd had enough and handed over the reins to a younger director named Kuroda Yoshiyuki. Nor was Misumi the only one to tire of the project. Koike Kazuo, who had come on as a writer for the series, began to feel the films were departing too much from the style of his manga, embracing the influence of American westerns in, among other things, their repeated return to a basic plot structure, an A-plot that revolved around Ogami Ito and his family, and a B-plot that eventually intersected with them. Plus, he wanted to, you know, actually finish the manga. His work on the films delayed that so much that the series wouldn't actually be done in manga form until after the last movie came out, so the films don't actually conclude the story in any meaningful way. Koike would eventually begin to scale his involvement in the franchise back, and he would be totally absent for the sixth and final film. Even Katsu Shintaro, the man who had gotten this whole damn thing started in the first place, was eventually forced to step out, though it's unclear to me if this was because of the pressures involved in working on the Zatoichi films, or because of one of his many bouts with substance abuse, or both. The only one who would see the project through was Wakayama Tomisaburo himself, the man who believed in the films so much he'd ambushed the lead writer outside of his home to show him why nobody else could play Ogami Ito. Wakayama was a big part of every film and scaled his involvement up. Once Katsu left, Wakayama became the new producer and was instrumental in picking the young and inexperienced Kuroda Yoshiyuki to direct the final film. It's thought he did this in large part because Kuroda's inexperience would make it easier for Wakayama to control the project. So ultimately all six films did get made, though in the process the creative team making the films would disintegrate more or less completely. But that still leaves us with the question of why. Why are we talking about these six films? What makes them stand out from the other pulpy samurai genre films being made in the 60s and 70s? Well, I think the story of Lone Wolf and Cub is interesting for what it reveals first about the workings of the Japanese film industry. You get a good sense from this story of both how the film industry was reflecting changing tastes in the shift toward the darker type of film Lone Wolf and Cub represents, and of how the industry operated, in terms of its contract structure and brutal pacing of production. You also get a sense of how personality-driven it was and can still be, I think it's fair to say that Wakayama and Katsu Shintaro personally deserve a lot of the credit for making the films possible at all. Indeed, as a historian, I would make the argument that lowbrow films like this one, and indeed the lowbrow elements of culture more generally, be they books, comics, TV, whatever, 
are better vehicles for understanding the themes and anxieties of a given time than anything that's considered to be more highbrow. By definition, something intended to appeal to a mass audience has to, well, appeal to that audience, meaning that the people making it have to have some sense of what they think is going to connect with consumers. Art for the sake of recognition as a craft has value, but that value is grounded more in the technique of the art and the position of the artist, and less in its ability to reflect a broader cultural moment, at least in many cases. To put it simply, it makes more sense to get your idea of what the average person was thinking about from media that was actually developed for a wide following than it does to focus on pieces not intended for mass market appeal. Beyond this, Lone Wolf and Cub is pretty well known in the United States. The films developed a small overseas following that included Hollywood producer David Weissman, who worked with Toho to buy the rights for foreign distribution. He had the first two films recut into a single film called Shogun Assassin, which changes around some aspects of the original plot that I'm not going to get into, while keeping the central framing device. The goal of the edit, from what I can tell, was to remove as much of the plot as possible in order to maximize the number of badass fight scenes, and it seems to have worked as Shogun Assassin did develop a strong cult following, Fun fact, it also almost got banned by the UK Home Office for being too violent, though that little crisis did get resolved. Shogun Assassin, in turn, helped popularize Lone Wolf and Cub overseas. The film was a pretty big influence on several American action directors, most notably Quentin Tarantino, who has included references to the films across his filmography. He's not the only one, though. The series is referenced on the show Samurai Jack, for example. In the world of comics, Frank Miller was apparently inspired to do some of his darker work by reading Lone Wolf and Cub after seeing the movies, as was artist Max Allen Collins, whose own graphic novel Road to Perdition was eventually turned into a film too. And then of course there's The Mandalorian, which is clearly borrowing a few looks from Lone Wolf and Cub itself because of all the spoilers spoilers that I'm not going to get into. So the film struck a chord outside Japan as well. And for good reason. They're over-the-top and entertaining, but there's also a solid emotional core to them in the form of the relationship between Ogami Ito and his son Daigoro. Clearly, Koike Kazuo was right to suggest that a pulpy drama grounded in family relationships would find a market. If anything, he underestimated his own ideas. They didn't just appeal to the 1970s era of the New Japan, but all over the world. Plus, again... The whole story is enormously stylish. Of course, it's hard to describe this on an audio show, but if you get a chance, look up some excerpts from the film or the manga to get a sense of what I mean. The fights, in particular, just look cool. And hey, in the end, who doesn't love a good bit of fun at the movies? That's all for this week, and for this year, thank you very much for listening. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at at giantenemy underscore crab to see all the things I'm yelling about on the internet. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you all in 2020. Have a lovely new year, and thank you all for everything you've done to support this show. 
and to help spread the word. Happy New Year.